Hello everybody, thanks for joining us here on Lighting the Pipes. Today we're going to be reviewing John le Carre's first novel, Call for the Dead, published in 1961, also the first George Smiley investigation, or adventure, if indeed that's the right phrase, Josh. My name is Scott Powell, and as always I'm joined by my reader in arms across the pond, Josh Taylor. Welcome to my abode. I was going to say, are you welcoming me, or are you welcoming the listeners, or what? We're welcoming everybody here. That's what we're all about. It's all about detente. Detente. <laughs> well, that's the ultimate okay, goal right. in the end. Definitely not that's in this That's the ultimate story, goal, though. yeah. Not in this one, pal. Uh, yeah, if you've been uh, listening to Light in the Pipes lately, you know that we're uh, we're thick into our new season now of, of reads. Most recently, we looked at Batman Year One by mm-hmm. Frank Miller and company, and today... I can hear the brakes screeching across the pavement as we're, we're turning around. A bit of a Yui here as we go into some Cold War fiction. Exactly. No, we're going from the graphic novel over back to our regular program, Diet of uh, the Mystery Novel slash Spy Novel. Because, you know, we are a mystery novel podcast, but we have has some Graham Greene on here. So it's not like we haven't touched the spy genre so far. Oh, yeah, we've definitely touched the spy genre. I would say that uh, mystery spy investigations, I think our genres, as the seasons go on, uh, the pulpiness comes in and out, the spy comes in and out. We have a varied offering. Let's put it that way, a varied offering. We do. We do. And I'm happy and we to touch provide on films, that. film noir. Yeah, we, we got a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, we touch on those a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. But John Le Carré, I've been looking forward to, to reading him uh, since we started this podcast. I figured we would get into them after we did some Graham Greene. So I'm very excited to be here. Uh, my experience with John Le Carré, I don't know if it's the same as yours, but I haven't read one of his novels uh, prior mm-hmm. to this. I do remember him just in facets of my life. For example, uh, The Constant Gardener is, was, is not one of my favorite films, but that was that was an adaptation of one of his books, and I really enjoyed that movie, particularly, you know, the performance by uh, Ray Fiennes and uh, Rachel Weiss in that film. Uh, so that one I've always held on to. And A Tailor of Panama, that was kind of weird because I'm like, this doesn't feel like a James Bond movie, but I'm Pierce Brosnan is not James Bond. And I think I watched that when I was a bit too young, when I was still, you know, in the Pierce Brosnan years, I was maybe a bit too young and I just wasn't really ready for it, but... That's one movie I think I'm going to go back to is is that one because I, I remember enjoying parts of it anyway. So I think older, more mature me will enjoy it more. Um, yeah, and Graham Greene kind of like like for example the um, the quiet American confidential agent. Confidential agent. I think he fits well into John, into John Le Carre's world, and you know we talked about Ian Fleming. Yeah, Le Carre, you know, Le Carre was quite was quite fond of him, wasn't he? I believe he was. Yeah, but. One thing I wasn't able to pick up in my research on Jean Le Carré, and maybe because it was very minimal, last minute kind of a thing, was what his influences are. And so that's something that we can discuss when we get into the fast facts about Jean Le Carré and the writing of A Call for the Dead. But one thing about Jean Le Carré I've always remembered throughout my life is that our uncle, rest in peace, Uncle Richard Day, uh, he was a huge Jean Le Carré yep. fan. And I remember always seeing a Jean Le Carré book on his coffee table whenever we go and visit him and my aunt. And uh, yeah, he passed away just a couple of years ago. Um, still seems very soon. But, you know, uh, he was a member, he was sorry, he was an officer in the British Merchant Navy. And then he ended up with working for Bowwaters. And that's how he met my aunt. And, and then, you know, that's how he became part of my life as my uncle. 
And uh, well, he worked Transport Canada, federal government, always on the go. I we I, always I thought he was a spy. Sort of promulgated. <laughs> yeah, I promulgated that theory a long time ago. We were children then. It started then, but fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, I don't know if I was a children then. I mean, it started as a fun thing. And then it kind of became more as I grew up, like, no, really? Like, why is it you can, like, I don't really know what he does. <laughs> I just, I just don't really understand what he does. Like, he's always traveling the world. He has. Yeah, I think he loved that part about the job. But, you know, after, you know, since his passing, you know, I met a lot of his fellow employees and whatnot, and they had great things to say about him. And they said that that's just what he loved doing was working with that type of vocation and regarding, you know, ship standards and uh, Navy background, fisheries, uh, that's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, he, he liked doing that and he got the, and he got the, the globe trotting in there, which he always loved. So, you know, but anyways, my experience with John Le Carré mostly comes from that. Um, and I guess you could say the man who came from the cold, the, the spy who came in from the cold, the Richard Burton movie, that would be another connection mm-hmm. to Le Carré. But I thought it would be good to you know, to, just to give a shout out to great old Uncle Richard, always with, always had the best Monty Python jokes. Uh, he tried to teach me how to drive, so I give him props for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we won't, but, we won't judge him on his successes there. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. No, those are limited to myself and nothing to do with his expertise at all. But anyways, just thinking, you know, just going into this and uh, John Le Carre made me think of Richard, so... Mm-hmm. Cheers. Yeah, Richard did like his he did yeah. like his Lacare. My dad was a big Lacare guy as well. I remember growing up always with a Lacare book on his oh, really? uh, bedside table. Oh yeah, dad was a, you know, his appetite for reading was tenfold mine. Maybe not now, but certainly in his younger years it was, and he always had a book on the go and Lacare was one of his favorites. But, you know, I never read one either, so I'm really I'm really pleased we're approaching Lacare from the beginning with this first book. Now, I'm not going to use this as a litmus for whether or not I'm going to proceed with Lacare. I think I will proceed with Lacare, but it's important to recognize, I think, that the George Smiley character, from everything I understand, and again, I haven't read into it so much to spoil it, but I do believe that the Smiley character changes considerably throughout his arc, if you see what I mean, and that this isn't necessarily the book to judge the Smiley character by. But we're only going to be reviewing this book today on and by its own merit. We're not going to be talking about what happens to the character in other texts. So if you've tuned in for a big Le Carre special, this is not the one. This is just an episode on Call for the Dead, because we read it in an isolation chamber, kind of, and that's how we're talking about it. Exactly. We're getting about to get interrogated to see if we're if we're true defectors or not. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Josh, you got some fast facts on uh, Lakari we can share with listeners and then break into a summary before we do our review. Absolutely. So John Lake Hooray. Now that was his nom de plume, by the way. That wasn't his real name, but I'll get into that. His first two novels, Call of the Dead and Murder of Qual and A Murder of Quality, they were essentially mystery fiction that utilizes aspects of that genre. But going forward with since book three, uh his third book, I should say, The Spy Who Came In from the Cold, uh, published in nineteen sixty-three, his he let his craft improve as a writer and He's he's just from there from that point on he's essentially responsible for the development of the modern spy thriller. 
Um, in his work, he explores notions of human frailty, moral ambiguity. He draws light on the fallibility of Western democracies and capitalism and reveals its corrupted foundations to which law and order is pursued around. There are, these aren't black and white stories is what I'm trying to say. And mm -hmm, there are no mm -hmm. pure heroes in his tales. Everyone is compromised mm -hmm. in some sense because Le Carre believed that the whole idea of espionage was a morally compromising subject uh, position to be in no matter what. He, and he himself was very politicized, uh, not on the extreme left, but he was definitely of a liberal mindset. Up until his death in 2020, he was a fervent opponent of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. He maintained that the need of oligarchy, whether it's corporate or whether it's through other means in Western democracy, that it would be its doom. And he even added his, this critique to Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the time. He was vehemently against Brexit. For a man who would work in moralistic ambiguity of the Cold War, he was a true social justice warrior, despite contradictions in his personal life that were known, but were revealed only posthumously to the general public. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you terms, talked about those. Are you referring to his his, his dalliances li, his, or li, yeah, his his yeah. Danger, his his liaison dangereux, as 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 mm -hmm. as, as they say. Uh, but going in terms of his contribution to the spy novel, he's responsible for staples such as the mole. Uh, if you ever watched at any season of Twenty Four, you know what moles are all about, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or Mission Impossible, even that uh, always deals with moles. And then you have the honey trap concept uh, that's also came from Le Carre. In a nutshell, the tropes of modern espionage stories and the techno thrillers that followed, like Tom Clancy, they were established by John Le Carre. Now, Jean Le Carre was born David John Moore Cornwell, October 19th, 1931, in Poole, County of Dorset, England. His family was interesting. His mother left the family when he was only five. She was Irish on her mother's side, a fact that will play into Lacar's Lacare's uh, life decades later. His father was definitely a piece of work. He had to deal with physical abuse from him, for one thing, and that was a dark part of his life that's lighted upon with his protagonist in the 1986 novel uh, *The Perfect Spy*. He had siblings and half siblings. His half-sister, Charlotte Cornwell, was a British stage actress. His older brother, Tony, was an advertising exec and champion cricketer. And his brother, his half-brother, Rupert, was the Independence Washington bureau chief. And they all achieved some sort of success despite their terrible father, Ronald. Now, beyond being violent, Ronald was eventually jailed for insurance fraud. And an extra interesting detail, his father was an associate of the Cray twins, who were British mobsters in the 50s and 60s. Y you might remember about several years ago, Tom Hardy starred in a film about the twins called Legend. So I yeah, that yeah, was a, yeah. that's sort of an interesting side note there. Now, how did... Well, I'll tell you did, another side note. Just mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt you, but just Not something connected to what you're saying. Um, the... There's a film on Apple TV right now, I don't know if you're going to discuss this, called The Pigeon Tunnel, which is a brand new documentary by filmmaker Errol Morris. And Ooh, Morris, wow. In that, yeah, in, in that in film, Lacarde is interviewed just before his death, um, uses a lot of interview, and Lacarde is, it's essentially, it is an entire interview with Lacarde, that's that's the, the film, but it's edited around sort of kind of smoky, intelligence, um, pastiche stuff, you know? Yeah, interesting. But anyway... Anyway, he talks candidly about his father, and obviously uh, the director's got access to all sorts of family photos and stuff like that, and there is 
so much about his dad's criminality, about his father's kind of moral compass, um, about his dad's treatment of women, kind of all of the stuff that later, I think, it really had a enormous impact on the development of Lacare, you know? So it's it's an interesting film if anyone has seen it. There's a lot as you're as you're saying. There's a lot of Lacari, the information, news, memoir that's come out recently, posthumously. This film, The Pigeon Tunnel, is a documentary worth watching. I think. Yeah. Oh, great recommendation, Scott. I'll consider that for sure. Um, it'd be good to know more information, as I might be getting into more Lacare in the future. So good to know. Now, given what Scott said. Uh, how did the Cornwell children and their half-siblings get through this despite, you know, the terrible upbringing? Well, the answer lies with their maternal uncle, uh, Alec Glasney, uh, who was liberal MP for Dorset. Glasney kept an eye on things as best as he could. I mean, you can't let that get in the way of your political career. And yes. from this yeah. remote support, you know, I get the feeling that Le Carre lived in what I would say is an upper middle class yet toxic household. That's how I would put his existence together. Yes. You know? Yeah. Public schooled. Yep, for sure. Because his dad had the money to do it because he was a gangster, mm-hmm. essentially, to put him through That's school, right? right? Yeah. So, now, his education began at St. Andrew's Preparatory School near Pangbourne in Berkshire. From there, he went to finish at Shorebourne School, but at the overly disciplinarian headmaster forced him to leave for Europe, something he was able to do with, you know, with a might-as-well-have-been-absentee father just to get away. So, from mm-hmm. 48 to 49, he attended the University of Bern in Switzerland, where he studied foreign languages, When he returned to England, he immediately got called up for national service and was placed in the intelligence corps of the British Army in Allied-occupied Austria. Kind of the third man, if you you think about it. Uh, In Europe, he must have made some multilingual proficiencies because during his time in Austria, his chief duty was interrogating defecting communists from the East in in German, uh, in the German tongue. So he returned to England to study at Lincoln College, Oxford, uh, where he continued his international education. But at that by that point, though, he was covertly working for MI5, gathering intel on far-left groups in college. So the Cold War is in full swing, and England is experiencing its own form of McCarthyism. And, and it's also just Cold War in general. So in, in, this was in 1952 when he came back to go to Oxford. Two years later, his father declared bankruptcy, uh, leading Lacare to pursue teaching jobs to help pay for the rest of his education, and that basically led to him teaching at a prep school, full circle in a way. But in 1955, he returned to Oxford and graduated with a first-class degree in modern languages, and he taught his field German and French at Eton College for two more years and was inducted into MI5 as an officer in 1958. So... With his experience in Austria, you can say that he was already qualified to write about George Smiley and the circus, because here mm-hmm. he handled various agents, conducted more interrogations, arranged telephone tappings, and break-ins. All the tricks of the Cold War trade. I mean, break-ins, you think of telephone tappings, you automatically think of Watergate, right? But Absolutely. there was so much involved with that, and of course, with the Cambridge Four, whatnot, which I'll be getting to. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, While he was still at MI5, before he transferred to MI6, he did work under uh, Lord Clanmorris, who who was known as the spy novelist John Bingham. So, and he encouraged Lacare's writing. And he was one inspiration for the character of George Smiley, the other being a mentor from his finishing school days named Vivian H.H. Green. Now, 
Le Carre got into the fever and he wanted to publish, but like Clan Morris, uh, he would have to do so under a pen name because he was a spy and he didn't want to reveal certain secrets and, and whatnot, right? So on, on, under the Official Secrets Act or some version of it in England. So that's how he picked his pen name. Uh, he took his middle name, John, and then added the French sounding Le Carre. So David Cornwell became John Le Carre. Now, the seeds of Call of the Dead were planted uh, from when he was in MI5 to uh, MI6, and that allowed him to publish Call for the Dead in 1961 as he was transferred to MI6 in 1960. And when he was transferred to MI6, he worked at Bonn at the British Embassy, where he officially worked for the consulate secretary. His work with MI6 came to an end, however, in 1964 during the Cambridge Four revelations where Kim Philby, longtime Soviet spy, revealed he had outed Le Carre and many other spies and operatives to the KGB. So basically, it was a writing career from then on for John Le Carre. So luckily, mm-hmm. no reprisals were carried out against the revealed agents. So it wasn't like a kind of a Bond story where they find they out the agents and then they go and get the knock list and kill everyone, right? It's yeah, not yeah. like it's it's, mm-hmm. it's not like that at all. Uh, as for his or personal life, anyway. yeah. As for his personal life, he was married twice. His first marriage to Anne Sharp in '54 ended in '71 when they divorced. Uh, they had three sons. His second wife was Valerie Jane Eustace, who was also his book editor at Holder and Stoughton, his publisher, and they had a son named Nicholas. Uh, who also wrote under a nom de plume years later. He owned land in Cornwall and in Gainsborough, Hampstead, so he was doing well for himself. Uh, about his political life, uh, he was against the war in Iraq, against the war in Iran, uh, very much a very lib- a public liberal figure, uh, you know, in social media against what was going on in England from na- up until, you know, the 2000s, up until his death. He was very angry about Brexit, and he used the citizen status of his maternal grandmother to become a citizen of the Irish Republic. And so he, he basically became an Irishman afterwards. Yeah. So definitely, it's almost very similar, if you think about it, to the writer. Oh, my goodness. Now his name's going to escape me. The writer of To the Riddle of the Sands, who basically... Erskine Childers. Yeah, to, to Childers, because both of them had an Irish heritage to their background, and they eventually betrayed their own country for England. Not in, not in the sense that Childers did, but you get, you get the drift. Yeah, um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So his death in December 2020 was attributed to a fall, of which he succumbed to his injuries days later at a Truro hospital. His wife, Valerie, followed him a year later. And going back, what we were talking about, about his private life, uh, a biographer, Adam Sisman, revealed that he made, that he had many affairs during the second marriage. And this is chronicled in his history of John Le Carre, which he published, I think, in 2021. So, yeah. There, were, there was an expose recently, uh, an expose is maybe not the right word, but I know that the Times published a feature by his biographer who uh, had been asked by Lacare to keep certain things under wraps until the time of his death, after which time he said, you know, fair game, you can print what you want. But it was kind of an authorized, unauthorized biography, if you know what I mean. Like Lacare yeah. would let him write what he wanted, but he always wanted to meet him to check in and to make sure what he was seeing. And it was, it's interesting the relationship they had over the years, his biographer and he. And uh, at least the, the bit that I read last month in The Times was. Um, it was quite revealing about that relationship uh, mm-hmm. in as much as it was about his dalliances. You know, it was interesting to hear about how he kind of, or how he tried to control without controlling the stuff that was printed about him before he died, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I see where you're going there too. And one thing I think I found very significant or struck me when I was reading about his, you know, his biography and all the, all the other details of his life was how close he was in character to George Smiley in his life. Like he did almost the same mm -hmm. things that George Smiley did, which is pretty wild if you think about it. And I'm sure there's stories that are not told for security reasons about stuff that he might have gotten into. And, you know, having a background like his father did, you know, it's hard to say about how much he contributed to that espionage life and how morally compromised that he became because of it too. You know, you, you really don't know. And that part, I haven't read that biography that came out after his death, but I'm wondering if it gets into details about that. Because look at Ian Fleming, who was a foreign intelligence officer in World War II, and we know that he was mostly at a desk job. And then he writes Bond, who's kind of his stand-in, you know, is kind of his super masculine stand-in for what he did during the war and him allowing to live through that, as some people have argued, through that character, you know, in, in a way. Whereas John Le Carré feels a little more makes this makes his writing seem even more realistic and familiar in a sense because he knows what he's writing about more so than even Fleming did in my opinion so yeah. Yeah. it's it's interesting and they're both kind of bad boys who went through the boarding school thing and you know it, interesting yeah they are yeah had many siblings yeah, as well sure. and talented siblings who did their own mm -hmm. thing like so it's very they're very similar in that way but they're also very different in, in terms of how they approach the spy genre if you think about it Absolutely different. Yeah, one is going for verisimilitude. And while Fleming's bond isn't necessarily rooted in in fabrication, because as you say, the, the secretary to the head of naval intelligence knows what he's writing about. He went yeah. in a, he went, he went down more of a, a Remo Williams <laughs> sort of channel, didn't he? I know yeah. that's a strange reference, but he, he went more for the, the, the entertainment than the espionage side of things, I guess, and the, the realism. For, yeah. those, for, those listening, <laughs> for those listening, for those listening, you can tell us who Remo Williams is. I will give you <laughs> will, a Stan Lee esque yeah. no prize for that one if you can tell me that. <laughs> right. Sorry, that, uh, no, not not the greatest comparison. But anyway, right. Good work. Good work on the fast facts. And uh, I've prepared as always a little plot summary for this book. It's about. 11, 12 minutes long, not too long at all. So if you're familiar with the book, skip ahead. Uh, if you are wanting to refresh, enjoy. If you don't know it, then read the book and come back and check in here. George Smiley is the near antithesis to what popular culture would have us believe a spy should be. Overweight, self-conscious, and plagued by a unique social awkwardness best understood by those who look around them and wonder what's happened to the world, Smiley just can't find his groove. Even his wife, Lady Anne Sercombe, knew the jig was up before he did, leaving him for a Cuban racing car driver. But Smiley can't quite bring himself to hate her. Or anyone, really. At least, that's how Lacare wants us to view him from the start. A bit of a middle-aged pushover, whose skills lie deep below the everyman filter of other people and places. In his younger years, Smiley was recruited for intelligence while reading classics and modern languages at Oxford. He developed a talent for interviewing and for talent spotting. He spent his war years undercover in Germany before returning to England to work for the Circus, headquarters of the SIS, so named for its location near Cambridge Circus. Among his work in this palpably sharp Cold War climate, is deep-dive research and back-checking of employee rosters. Someone's got to make sure Her Majesty's government isn't riddled with spies or personnel with peppered pasts. 
Late one night, Smiley is summoned by his bureaucratic, sycophantic chief, Maston. It seems that one of Smiley's routine interviews has come to a tragic end. Samuel Fennin, employee of the Foreign Office, has killed himself. After receiving an anonymous letter indicating that Fennin had communist leanings during his university years, Smiley conducted a cordial interview and cleared the man without much issue. Because Fennin had no private office, Smiley conducted the conversation informally over lunchtime in the park. Maston points the figurative finger at George, setting the wheels in motion for an inquiry into the civil servant's death. Smiley is confused. The interview was genial, and he all but cleared Fennin. In fact, he had the distinct impression upon leaving that both parties were pretty satisfied. After leaving the office, Smiley travels to Fennin's home, where he meets his wife, Elsa, a Jewish immigrant from Europe who settled in the UK following her horrendous experiences during the war as one of the Nazi Party's concentration and work camp prisoners. Elsa has been hardened by the countless horrors and isn't particularly warm to Smiley. While there, he answers a call in Fennin's home that he expects is Maston, for him, but which instead is from the operator's exchange, an 8.30 wake-up call. Suspicions begin to form. Smiley meets with police inspector Mendel, the officer in charge of the case locally, who helps out in obtaining confirmation that it was Fennin himself who made the request for that 8.30 call. Strangeness abounds. Can Elsa be trusted? Why would a man, set on ending his own life one day, place a call to ensure he'd be up and at it early the very next one? Something's not right here. Smiley returns to the office with these suspicions, but is stripped down by Maston and refrained from moving any further into the case. Frustrated by this red tape, Smiley gives in to a wave of apathy and discontent. He leaves Maston and sets his sight on leaving the service. At his desk, however, a letter awaits him. From Fennin, the night of his supposed suicide, requesting a pressing meeting with Smiley the next day. But Smiley doubts that Maston will budge, not with an aging agent in the crosshairs and an inquiry looming, and so he doesn't even share his suspicions. Instead, he drafts a letter of resignation to Maston and attaches Fennin's letter to it, the correspondent equivalent of a sarcastic up yours and good luck. As he approaches his home, Smiley's sixth sense starts to tingle. He notices movement in the drawing room and, instead of entering the house, rings the doorbell pretending to be part of the laundering service. A tall, handsome man answers the door and is struck for a moment himself by the strangeness of that moment. Smiley now suspects that man had entered his property and was waiting for him to return home with murderous intent. Before leaving the scene, Smiley memorizes the license plates of all seven cars parked on his road. He then reaches out to Inspector Mendel, who happily receives him and agrees to help Smiley work the case from the outside. All of the cars but one come out clean and even. The odd one belongs to Adam Scar, a mid-level Battersea crook whose dealings, through his not-so-reputable garage, led him into regular secretive engagements with a foreign stranger named Blondie. He rents the car out to this man on an anonymous contract. Crucially, Blondie's features match those of Smiley's house invader exactly. As Mendel works these bits of information from the insolent scar at the nearby pub, Smiley is attacked ruthlessly trying to track the car. 
Beaten with a lead pipe and left for dead, if not for Mendel's quick timing, George Smiley likely wouldn't have made it to the hospital alive. But he did, and wasn't permitted visitors for nearly three weeks while he recovered. Any other retired intelligence officer could have dropped his hope for the case cold, but not Smiley, partly because Mendel was committed to seeing things through. As such, Smiley directs the next few steps of the investigation limply from his hospital bed like a convalescing capo, fighting on the side of full disclosure with the stubbornness and intrigue that made him who he is. His body is broken, but his brain still works. Mendel discovers that Fennin's wife, Elsa, went to the theater every two weeks and met with a man that the staff there could only assume, innocently, reasonably, was her husband. A bit more digging reveals that this other man was actually the same blondie that Scar rented out the car to with such regular irregularity. The two would always attend the theater with music cases in hand. Again, the staff suspected nothing sinister. Why would they? Just two enthusiasts enjoying the regular shows and comparing notes. It's at this point, though, in the story that Smiley calls in his fellow circus agent, Peter Willem, to lend a hand. Okay, so he might not strictly be an employee anymore, but Smiley still has friends in the right places. Even Maston, though Smiley and the reader don't really know it yet, is being coolly supportive of Smiley's continued investigation, clearing away just enough red tape for forward motion. The trio learn that Blondie is actually Hans-Dieter Munt, an agent from East Germany working undercover as a diplomat for the East German Steel Mission for a man named Dieter Frey. This expose gets Smiley very nervous, as Dieter Frey was one of his operatives while stationed in Germany during the war. He comes clean about Dieter to Willem and Mendel, and we, the reader, learn the backstory alongside the two characters at Smiley's bedside. Frey was a dissident during the rise of Hitler, outwardly critical of the Nazis, a stance that put himself at great risk, Smiley recommended Dieter to Circus and worked closely with him while in Germany. He's remembered to us as a top agent, but got himself in bother with the Reichstag and paid the price for his disobedience with hard labor imprisonment in a work camp for a period of time. After the war, Frey's charisma and ambition led him to the top of the East German government service, eventually becoming one of its most effective operatives. Willem reports soon after these revelations are shared that Munt, Blondie, has left the country. He was identified by cabin crew on a flight back to Germany. This confirms Smiley's suspicion that Fry was using him as courier to access a highly placed agent. There's good reason to believe that Elsa Fennin is in possession of more answers than she previously shared. So Smiley returns to Fennin's home pursuing this hunch just as soon as he gets out of hospital. It takes only a little cajoling pressure from Smiley to result in a confession from Elsa. She claims that Fennin was a spy for East Germany and that she unwillingly got wrapped up in the delivery game for her husband, something that saw her pass secret documents over to Fennin's comrades in the music case. Elsa also says that her husband was killed by Munt after being spotted in the park with him, Smiley, the day of the interview. She claimed that she returned home to see her husband lying dead at the feet of Munt and was coerced into typing her husband's suicide note out of fear for her own life. Good at spitting political 
playing the victim and using her tortuous history to deflect, Elsa nevertheless fails to convince Smiley of all that she professes. He knows something's awry. That something receives a little more dimension when Willem calls in. He's done some digging around the circus and reveals that Fennin, throughout his last six months of service, during which time his security clearance was the highest ever, signed out no papers of great interest or secret. The obvious inference is that, far from being a spy passing on information, he was actually acting as a man cautious of that behavior. Smiley has every reason to believe now, in light of Willem's news, that Fennin's request for a meeting had something to do with his own suspicions, not a confession of guilt. The attention now focuses on Dieter and Elsa herself, and Smiley comes to realize that she, not her husband, is the East German agent. With this deduction comes another in its wake. The original letter of accusation, that instrument which motivated the plot against Fennin in the first place, was most likely drafted by Fennin himself in an attempt to get a meeting with someone at Circus so he could discuss concerns about his wife. Time isn't on his side as the denouement hurtles forward, but Smiley knows Dieter's tradecraft and implements a ruse in order to bring Dieter and Elsa together. Crossing his fingers and relying on Fry to understand the sign, Smiley lures him to the theatre with a postcard of Westminster Abbey. While in the darkened auditorium, Dieter stealthily kills Elsa and makes to escape. Mendel trails him back to a houseboat on the Thames near Battersea Bridge. Smiley rushes down to join and intercepts. Partly in defense of his attack on Mendel, and partly in answer to some primal instinct which Lacare specifies as, quote, the energy of madness, Smiley goes after Dieter and forces him over the bridge into the water below and his everlasting sleep. A repatriation of sorts takes place next when Maston visits Smiley at Mendel's house, saying he never really took his letter of resignation seriously and offers him a job running up a new division of satellite intelligence. He thinks carefully about taking it for a couple of days, but Smiley decides against. Instead, he hops a plane to Zurich. His ex-wife had recently written him from there, offering a more intriguing sort of repatriation for his tired bones. And so, while Call for the Dead comes to a close, this is only the beginning for George Smiley. He would go on to feature in eight other novels by John le Carre, not to mention film, television, and drama adaptations. Well done, Scott. Well done. Well, let's let's talk about our pipes then. Um, we've got five categories, each of which we mark with a score of five to give us an index marked at a 25. So our P, P stands for principal characters, I, investigation, which includes the writing of the story itself as well as the narrative. The second P is for perpetrators. The E is our environments, our locations, and the S is our secondary or supporting cast. Hmm. So in terms of principal characters, again, everyone, it's a great wealth of information out there on John le Carre podcasts, I'm sure, dedicated just to his work. But this is just lighting the pipes treatment of Call of the Dead, okay? Don't don't get on our case, please, for not giving Smiley the, the, the time of day here. This is us coming to him fresh. It's our one and only look at this book. So 
by its own merits, okay? Uh, George Smiley. Yes. For me, Josh, Smiley kind of jumps off the page, doesn't he, as like a, a pre-constructed character. Like, we, we don't wait very long to see what he's like, where he comes yes. from, or even the key foibles. The novel starts with a survey of his origins and his intelligence career. It seems to me, I don't know if you agree, but it seems to me that Smiley's kind of like, he's kind of embarrassed by life. Like, he's socially awkward, hyper aware mm-hmm. of himself. He's he's a fallible human being, right? He's He's got the virtues and also tons of self-doubt, but he's got virtues of what you would expect, like a... Um, a, a, a good moral police officer has. And in that sense, he's a little bit more police officer than follow instructions, secret agent yes, or, yes. you know, in, in intelligence operative. At least that's how I see it. But he's a kindly guy, social hangups. He's got anxiety, at least in this book. Now, I understand that uh, after the first two Smiley books, Lakari bestows a lot more power onto his character. But at least here, I read him as a pretty insightful social servant, you know, maybe more than a, a spy um yes, and exactly it's interesting it's interesting though to me that smiley's introduced as Anne's husband in chapter one not the other way around like we don't learn about who he has we learn about her yeah. her status and her class first and that to me i think does play to the class a little bit because she's posh and she's higher than he is yes. but to have the protagonist introduced through the wife at the beginning that's really curious to me. It's really interesting. I don't know if, yeah. if you noticed that, but it's it, it, as opposed to like a female character being understood through her husband, she is the start of the book and he is described through her status. And like, what, yeah, do, you, through her what society. do you make of that? Yeah. That's yeah. very interesting. Um, I think automatically puts the classist to it. And mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of introduces the narrative, pers- like or the point of view of the narrative is that it's like, so... This is a story set in England, you know, during the Cold War, 50s, 60s, what have you, during the whole spot, the Cold War era. And it's going to, but it's being introduced through the viewpoint of a high toity, of, you know, of, of hoity toity British society at the time. And it's clearly, it, it takes the thunder out of like, you think of a, of a James Bond novel, like, a funny novel. Uh, sorry, you think of James Bond and you have his character is usually like, Look at like the opening of Goldfinger, for example. It's like it always begins with the first sentence that like James Bond did this, or James Bond wanted to do this, or James Bond felt this. You know, like it automatically establishes who the protagonist of the story is. But in almost like an embarrassing kind of way, we're given kind of like the posh upper British echelon introduction to Smiley, going, so this is the lovely, you know, Lady Anne uh, Sircom, uh, who is the sister of Lord Solly. And then all of a sudden, she married this guy, this essential clerk named Smiley, who's this short kind of overweight man who doesn't really have any mm-hmm. physical accolades to crow about and or personal or personality accolades to crow about yeah. but then it but then they start talking about his background and how oh no in that kind of sense though his background is legitimate he's a servant of his country and in a way he's good for her up until she thinks that he's not and <laughs> the whole uh-huh. story ab- about wrapping that around her you know leaving him for the cuban race car driver so i, I don't know it's yeah, a way yeah. I, I don't think i responded as um What's the term? I don't think I re- as succinctly as you wanted to to your question, but I do feel that that's okay. We're intru- it's all right. We're, yeah. we're we're introduced to this character through someone else's perspective. They're almost like 
Lacare's writing is apologizing for having this character in the first place. But here we go. That's this story, exactly right. That's exactly sto- right. Like, yeah. yeah. Sorry about this. <laughs> I got I got there eventually, it's, but yeah. it's yeah, it's, you did. Yeah, it's an apologetic okay. tone, and it kind of starts out almost uh-huh. making me feel like it's satirical in a way. But then as it goes along, it's not. But that, that's yeah. kind of how I was started out for me. And like you, I will state the preface to our listeners that I am not treating this as a, as, a, as one in a series of stories about George Smiley. I am viewing this as my experience on this book alone. And so mm-hmm. that is my reaction to it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I like, I, yeah. I, well, I, I felt, I felt Smiley also difficult to score a bit because Mendel and Willem do an awful lot of his legwork. And he isn't as active in the role throughout oh. the book as he is kind of uh, kind of like a mother brain or like a Krang, you know, to the Ninja Turtles in this one. Uh, in, or in to Shred, way. I guess I should say. Yeah. I'll just tell you, I, I went for a three overall because I like Smiley. He's interesting. I, I like, but I, I don't understand as a principle. It's not just that Mendel and... Willem do stuff for him. They take their own initiative and do stuff too, which kind of diminishes him as a principal. It because does, they yes. work on his behalf, not following up his own hunches, but often following their own hunches to reveal things. And I yes. feel like that that makes him as a principal really challenging to celebrate or to score or to view either heroically mm. or mock heroically or, you know, uh, fallibly. Like I just... Yeah. I found him tough to score, but I went for a three overall because that's just how it felt to me. But that might be a okay. bit on the low side. I don't know. I was a one. I was a point higher than a half a point higher than you. I I gave the principal three and a half out of five because I loved the groundwork that Lacare gives Smiley. He made me interested in him as a character. I wanted to have more of him. I like the tone in which Lacare writes about Smiley and how how he how he depicts how. Smiley perceives the world as a spy would in in that situation. So I really appreciated that. It was very refreshing compared to like spy novels, you know, other spy protagonists in this sense. Like, for example, Hane in uh, The 39 Steps or even Bond, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, it's an unconventional, but it's a realistic down-to-earth portrayal of an espionage agent. As you said, they're more like civil clerks than they are, for example, they're more like civil clerks who who do dirty work than superheroes, you know? Like, think of, like, the Jennings and the Americans, how, like, they try to be real people in real life, and they usually do ranging from boring to sometimes dangerous missions, right? So Mm -hmm. it's that kind of situation. The typical spy setup in terms of writing uh, the spy genre that Le Carre has started with this story. So it's important to consider, you know, what this story did influencing other writers of espionage and TVs or books or movies, what have you. But going back to what you said, I feel that he, that we get faucets of his personality and they are very well reflected to me as a reader, but he feels like a supporting character in his own story. You know, like, as you said, yeah. Mendel yeah. sometimes well, takes exactly the lead. that's right. Yeah. It's almost, I'm not going to say he's like Quixote, but it's very picaresque in how like, he kind of just like stumbles mm. and falls down and 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 sits out of the action and then he has to deal with it like it's almost like it's not passive aggressive but he's a reaction he's reactionary he's not um proactive well he tries to be but when he does he falls on his face for it because he's just a regular guy in this sense right and the, the, but the novel doesn't really oh, give I don't you know. a I don't know I think I think 
I think his proactivity at the end comes in. Like he he knows Dieter Spycraft. Like he knows his tradecraft, and he yeah he goes for the postcard and he lures him in. Like he he does get there, and certainly yeah. his agency it, 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 on the bridge. Yeah, I feel like his agency is delayed until the very end when they need it for the denouement. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Le Carre keeps yes. him out of the story as yeah. much as possible to let other people do do the work that maybe in a regular spy story that one character that one protagonist would be able to do everything that Mendel and them were doing. Yeah. And maybe Le Carre didn't find that realistic because he worked with operatives. He worked with a group of people. He worked as a team to get the job done. And maybe that's just how he feels about writing those types of characters is that sometimes you're out of the action and then someone else is doing it for you. I mean, mm. think of like, well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I do got to stop you there. Cause I wonder if we were to continue reading Le Carre and those listening to the show who know this will probably know the answer to the question. I wonder if Lacare does have great respect for like the police force and that idea of just doing the business because he certainly seems to enjoy writing and respect Mendel and Willem here, you know, mm-hmm. as helpers, as agents. So yes. this is kind of the anti-bond in the sense that, like you say, your hero is not out running and doing all the jobs himself. He's in a hospital bed half the book and mm-hmm. he's got other people doing it. And I think that Mendel, he really seems to to big up the efficiency of this, you know, near retired police officer or police inspector. I wonder if if there is in the Lacare books, a general or genuine kind of um, appreciation for that type of work and character, or if he, you know, subverts that or switches it around. I wonder. It's kind of Chandlerian too, if you think about it, because we recall Marlowe getting knocked out and being out of the action and things just happen outside of his control and then he has to react to it. So it could also be Le Carre, you know, taking a nod from the mystery novel as he does in many ways in this book. And also, if you think about it, look, if Sherlock Holmes, I mean, he figures the case out brooding like in his pad and then he comes out and solves the, solves the mystery. Maybe the hospital bed, being injured in a hospital bed is Smiley's way of going into his mind palace, you know, as to solve yeah, the crime yeah. it's, it's it's arguable in that sense you can see that and i can see like may maybe poking at that i don't know but i think because i'm making him a supporting character in his own story i feel that's purposeful but as a mystery story it kind of takes my anchor away from it you know like i'm right in the mm-hmm. middle mm-hmm. and trying to figure things out and i don't have someone to cling to like it's just a kind of a it's a it's like a a menage of all these motives and and goings on in one story and our protagonist who's supposed to be my through line he's just you know on the sidelines in a way so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you jump from protagonist to protagonist so i think that if anything i would you know prevents me from giving it full marks to a slight degree so while i wasn't i was more generous with my half a point but i'm still sitting at my three and a half out of five for the principles for uh george smiley i like the groundwork i like what i've seen so Mm -hmm. far I just want more and I want him to be more involved in, in the story. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen going forward, if I continue with the Smiley books, but that's kind of my expectation anyways. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of the investigation, uh, I went for a three and a half on the investigation. I found it interesting. I found the writing of the book engaging. I liked yes. it. Um, I didn't love it. I liked it. Yes. I have a couple of questions about Lacare as a writer, maybe... Um, I I find this book has a bit of anti-Semitism going on. I find it's it's got a little bit of anti-immigrant going on. Like certainly the Cuban race car driver is slammed with his, you know, the references to his skin and his hairy arms and his yeah. dark skin and all that stuff. Like 
I don't know that there's an objectification of Jewish characters here for their nobility, uh, but... I never thought about thinking of it in a negative sense, so that's a good point that you make, and I'll pull on that once I get to my part on here, so uh, just... I, I don't know, I mean, continue from the there, investigation... Though. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't really think I have a lot more to say about it, it's just a question. You see at the end, right, Smiley's justification of Dieter's death in the memo that he sends, is that a little bit dishonest? I mean... We know that he's broken up by, by oh, what the, happened. The because, memo? You mean the breakdown of the yeah, storyline for yeah, the readers like, at the end? <laughs> the, the, the death of Dieter at the end of the book, it's, it kind of feels to me like Smiley knows Dieter isn't trying to kill him. And there's a nobility in that, right? Like he knows that this was his old spy master. He knows that this was his old controller. He's not trying to kill him. It even says that at the end of the book, like... He 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 knew he was being hit, but Dieter wasn't going in for the kill. Whereas Smiley, there's like that madness in him. That's the word that Lakari uses. There's that madness in him that pushes Dieter over the bridge, and then he he's remorseful afterwards. Like it gains a big remo- emotional response in the moment of the event, and we hear a lot about about um, Smiley's admiration for Dieter throughout the text about his best agent and all of that stuff. But I just don't know about that. The, the way he justifies it in the memo, I just feel like it's a bit dishonest. Like he is torn up about that. He is what torn you, up about, about what I mean, he does. I mean, it makes sense that he would hide his personal emotions about the situation and look at it as a report. I mean, that does make sense. But are you yeah, sort of right. suggesting, yeah, yeah, okay. are, are you sort of suggesting that I, I, maybe I think in it's hoodwinking capacity- the reader. I think it's hoodwinking the reader. Okay. Okay. I, I just think, well, he has to, because this is sort of like, it's a, a meta situation, right? Because right in this sequence here, we're getting kind of what we saw like in the Bond novels, where you see like a report written that Bond has to read by M or something on the case that he's about to take on. And so what we're doing mm-hmm. is we're given a report on the situation by the main character. So it's going to act as both like a meta thing to explain the story to the audience to unravel this whole web that we've been given in here, this very twisted web of narratives and motives and, you know, past histories colliding and whatnot, tangling with each other. And then we have the way that he's expressing it to the the person, diegetically, he's presenting this to as a report, right? So he's going to hide back some of those emotional things and he might hide back things to making it sound less emotional. So that's my argument there. But I was just wondering maybe if you were suggesting that Smiley killed Dieter uh, deliberately during that confrontation. I'm just wondering if there was any import to that. Yeah, I think he does. I think he does. I think he's he's ashamed that one of his own guys has turned. I think he's ashamed of that. I think he's embarrassed by that. that. And yeah, and the way that the way that Lakari writes it, he calls it like he's trapped in a madness. And now that could be a madness of rage. It could be a madness brain fever. Of, of <laughs> that's Conan Doyle. I'd love to have seen that pop up. Yeah. Um, who knows? I, I don't know. I think he tries to kill him, though. Yes, I do. And I think that's part of the reason he's remorseful. He thinks he should be more controlled than that. He wishes there was another way to do it. But he knows he's got, he's got, you know, he's got the animal in the trap. And he takes that last, that last plunge, working against he, him up against the railing of the bridge. He does. And you can argue, too, that, I mean, we'll get into the perpetrators, but you can argue that Frey kind of had it coming in his own way, in a, in a hubris sense, because he created Munt. But Munt doesn't have the same ideological mm-hmm. beliefs as, like, him and Elsa had like Munt no. is just a monster. He's he's a Frankenstein monster that they created essentially. Well, right? he's, a, so, he's a handsome man. He's just, he's described as being you know a, yeah, but a he's a Frankenstein monster in in the oh, sense yeah, that yeah. He, he's just like a psychopath. He's like Red Grant essentially, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in many ways. 
Now, well, Dollar I, Grant, what'd you go for? So on paper, it seems linear, but it's, I find it's deliberately confusing and convoluted in view of the narrative. Uh, even first time author Le Carre, I feel he doesn't that he himself is, is unsure of whether or not the, the audience will be able to entangle it. Hence, we get this Sherlock Holmes-esque breakdown in the report at the end. Mm. Um, yeah. There's a sense of realism to his writing I found refreshing, how it conveys the hierarchies involved, how the security services work, the egos involved, the politics involved. He demonstrates that murky, morally ambiguous nature of the business quite well. Um it has a structure of a mystery novel, but with the revelation of Dieter Frey more than halfway through the book, connecting to Smiley's past, it feels a little left field. And mm-hmm. to, even though it's logical, I felt as a reader, I was pulled from being a spy, being in a spy-based mystery novel to that of a spy thriller. And I kind of struggled balancing those two things. And Interesting. Yeah. I like the idea of the villains, you know, going against, even at that, now, as you point out, the anti-Semitic, uh, possibilities there and i don't know if i really feel about that and that that to me would make le carré a big hypocrite later on in his life if that was the case if he was anti-semitic and whatnot but um you know the idea that a lot of these i think it's the, it's the themes maybe in the writing about how the fascism of nazi germany of the the failing of the western capitalist system led to nazi germany And it produced these super socialist agents out of those who were othered by that regime, i.e. the Jews. And so we have characters like Elsa, like Dieter Frey, who came from these Jewish backgrounds as ideological agents. And they were used by Western intelligence services to spy because of their want, because they believe they wanted revenge, they wanted justice, and they were used by these organizations and kind of chewed up in their own way. But what happened is that Mm. the the, the Marxist ideology, the socialist ideology went extreme in, in, in them and they basically became a different type of fanatic as opposed to the Nazis in a way. And I think Lacare is, is was trying yeah. to point that out, but I, th- I think mm-hmm. he was too ambiguous about it that he was trying to play safe. And to me, it kind of got to the sense where you kind of saw it maybe being anti-Semitic where I just think. I, I, yeah. I'm sorry for using that expression. I don't know. Yeah. I would go that far. It just seemed to me like they're in the ambiguity. There does lie some sort of criticism, but I also feel like they're objectified. Maybe that's the better word I'm looking for. Maybe it's not okay. outright anti-Semitism. Maybe it's more of an objectification of these Jewish or Jewish backgrounded figures who have a nobility and a righteousness about them that I've, I'm, I'm reading through the, through Dieter Frey, through uh, Fennin, Elsa Fennin. Like maybe I'm reading that and I just, I, I'm not for a second accusing, I, I haven't yeah. read enough of his work to do that. I just wonder if there is this thing, in this book, I feel it. I just wonder if there is this thing in other cases where those characters or characters, maybe it's a more xenophobic thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a prep, or scare, uh, a prep school thing. I don't know. An agent <laughs> thing, a British thing. If there is a um, kind of like an outsider thing where you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to simplify and objectify their motives, even if the plot surrounding them is noodle twisted you know that's kind of the frustration of the ambiguity of the story i suppose is that it allows you to make your own conclusions about what's going on right and uh it's interesting to think of it that way um i was very much like you in the rating though i exactly like you in the in the rating of this category i gave it three and a half out of five as well all right cool so uh, i we, we got the same mark for investigation josh i know but 
I don't really think like I, I talked much about the actual investigation. I, I made a couple of comments about the writing and, and then that was it. Like it is a straight ahead narrative, as you say, like there aren't a lot of twists and turns. I, I think some of my comments will probably come out when I talk about the characters, the supporting cast and the perpetrator. But one thing I was, I was curious about, like, do you think that Dieter and Elsa are having an affair? Like we can talk about it when we get to them if you want, but I'm I'm not sure. Like they're certainly, yes, yeah. Like they're they're certainly written as being more close than the other spy relationships, but there's there's really no proof, is it? No, I would say that Dieter is an ideological partner to Elsa, but I don't think there was an affair. If it was, it was an intellectual, maybe emotional one, but it wasn't like a physical one. And she was loyal to her husband, to Fennin, but Fennin was just too weak of a socialist for her, I, I suppose. Mm. Or he wasn't as radical as she wanted him to be, right? Well, just just hear me out, okay? And this is why I'm interested in your opinion, because you can tell me whether you think I'm just barking up the wrong tree here. It isn't confirmed by the novel, so fair enough, it just isn't. But that could explain why Fennin wanted to report his wife, okay? just Just think about this, right? For six months, he's not bringing home anything top secret, right? Keeping his wife from being a good spy, essentially. So if that's the case, yes, you could say, well, that's just because he had his suspicions and he was morally upright and he wanted to turn her in. But the devil's advocate in me, or the, the reader, I guess, that kind of leans towards crippled, chaotic human <laughs> motivations cynicism? or whatever. Yeah, cynicism. I'm happy to entertain the idea of an affair because... It makes sense. You know, yeah, he he was being patriotic just by keeping her from accessing files, but turning her in, that's that feels like a, something different to me. That feels like a bit of get back, a bit of payback, a bit of, well, Extreme you've payback. done this to me, so I, yeah, like I'm doing this to you. Like, I don't know. Because he took it care of her, like... like- he, he took care of her, like, when she was ill. Like, we know that she was in that office-turned-sick room, whatever. Like, when she was in bed convalescing for the longest time, like, she was an invalid. And he took yeah. care of her and everything. And then all of a sudden, he's not – She's and all of a sudden, he just goes and betrays her for his country like that? I don't know. I think that's a, that's a bit suspicious in, in terms of his motivations. So, I can see that's a missing piece that could work if mm-hmm. – if Lucare had more time to explore that, if he went beyond the length of what the novel has given us, but anyway, yeah, and he doesn't, I, I, right? Like, no, he doesn't. It's tra- it's a trap. One hundred and fifty so pages, essentially, and you know. Yeah, but the thing exactly is that there's right, a lot of yeah. ambiguities and subtleties in there, so you're guessing people's motivations, and everyone's motivations are truly murky because what do they believe in the end, right? So, I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So stylistically that kind of writing goes with the theme of the story in a way but it could also be we also didn't want it to have it to be a cop-out for what could possibly just be lazy writing on Le Carre's part or yeah. not enough depth yeah. on his part if you know what I mean absolutely yeah so it's a weird one it's a weird one but anyway yeah. um, I, I, okay, I talked cool. about the structure of the story I think that in terms of writing I don't really in terms of like writing style I found he was good. I, I liked how he kind of jumped between almost like recollecting this at a, at like a, at a party with a whole bunch of other intelligence operatives and everyone is all being all, you know, sophisticated and stuff. There's like kind of a satirical bent to some of the writing, which, which is why I kind of brought yeah. in the pic, the picaresque wording, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's also mm-hmm. serious, but 
it lacked urgency, I think. And that's the Mm. the lack of urgency to things. Like I felt like everything was going to be resolved in the end. I wasn't really put into suspense by the story because I was never worried about the characters because let's face it, the protagonist was sidelined for the majority of it. And even when like Elsa ends up being killed, I, I found like any emotional investment I had into what was going on with her ended with that too, because she wasn't important to the whole story either. And by then I was still kind of yeah, detached. Like yeah. I found myself like watching this scene, like I found myself kind of as a puppet master or some sort of, I don't know, like the guys in the balconies and the Muppets. I don't want to give that example, but it was just a matter <laughs> of me overseeing all these lives twisting, you know, like a melodrama almost in in a way. And I just found that I was detached from it. I could never get emotionally pulled into the story or the urgency of the situation, but I still okay. marveled at some of the realism in terms of, of spy craft, in terms of espionage, in terms of the politics. Like I, I bought that mm-hmm. satirical and critical bent that sure. Le Carre is putting in there. But I just found that like the story itself was pretty linear, but I think he made it confusing and convoluted, as I said earlier, in in a way to make it not seem linear, to make it seem murky. But he was really working with a very small toolbox in the end. And I think that kind of shows. Uh, it really sounds like we're putting this book down. And I, I want to point that I did enjoy this book. I mean, I do have lots of experience with spy fiction and spy movies and whatnot. So that lends to my own experience. So I will admit a bias towards, you know, that genre. But at the same time, even though the tropes were pretty much created with books like this, you can't still help realize that they are mm-hmm. tropes in a sense. Yeah, you know, it's like someone sure. who watches an old movie or or starts or is, or is always watch modern films and then goes to finally watch an old movie and they have trouble getting into it because of how the acting is different, how the storytelling is different, how the pacing is different. It's you got to kind of acclimate to it. And I think I was acclimating by the end of this book in terms of what it was trying to, to do for me, but as I want, I still wanted more. And I felt this first book could have had like mm. maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple, about 20 more pages or so just to flesh out little details. I, I think that wouldn't have hurt the book. You know, it's 150 mm-hmm. plus pages. What's 200 going to make or 180, you know, like, I, I don't know. Like I yeah, felt there was just a, it is lean. It, it is lean. There's a lot of information packed in there. No doubt. Like the first couple of pages, I found that they actually did pull me into the story and I got pulled into the story very quickly. But then I found kind of as soon as, smiley takes his back goes goes to the hospital bed it just to me like it became too much of a procedural afterwards and i was just not i knew there was going to be an outcome that they would solve the case and i never felt any urgency or or threat suspense even to the story and that's i didn't i didn't feel this i guess i didn't feel the stakes because the stakes weren't meant to be you know dangerous to the world or as a whole they were just meant to be dangerous to these people's lives but I felt that there was needed some an extra bit of intimacy. I think in the writing could have made me more connected to it. I, mm. I probably said the same okay. thing two or three times yeah. already, but that's kind of where I'm going with it no. in terms of how I felt about the writing and the story overall. Yeah, well, that's well said. I I don't disagree with you. And it is always tricky when you're looking at the first novel of yes of a 
uh, it's not a series, I appreciate that, but the first novel of a character. And when Lacare wrote it, I don't know if he had it in mind that there would be more and more and more of them. So mm. we know that the stakes aren't ultimately going to be too high for Smiley because there's more Smiley books. We know that going into this one. But in 1961, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure people did. So you know, I also felt maybe he was being hindsight. hesitant because because he was still working for the MI6 at the time when he published this book. So he had to be as Maybe, yeah. the, discreet as possible in telling these stories without discreet, giving away, yeah. Yeah. Without, without giving away and such. So maybe it was just, mm. he had to pull himself back from revealing too much or getting into too much detail. So he was just on tippy toes while he was writing it and getting what he- That's a good and, point. And, yeah, sure. So Maybe. the book can kind of stand aside as like a historical artifact in that sense about it's depicting a time by someone who was there and is just and is being as hesitant as possible in giving you all the details of what happened all in right. that kind of business. Okay, well, with that said, uh, we can move on and have a look at the perpetrators. I'll go first if you'd like me to. Um, sure. I, I thought, uh, who do we got here? Well, let's lay it out. We got Elsa, we've got Dieter, and we've got Munt, right? They're basically the, the that's the triptych. Yeah, we don't really consider Adam Scar part of the villains per se. Nah, I mean, he's, he's, um, yeah, he's an interesting character, though. He's charismatic, and he's, his scenes with Mendel I quite liked, but yes, I agree with you. He, uh, he's maybe a London perpetrator, but he's not a, he's not the plot perpetrator, is he? Um, there was something Elsa very f- familiar to how he wrote Scar, though. Like just to just to go on to that a bit, I know it's like he's technically supporting cast, but I, in terms of villainy, though, I felt that Lacare had he wrote him very well. Like he was a very believable kind of Cockney Guy Ritchie esque villain, you know. Oh, in yeah, that very sense. much so. Yeah. yeah. So it makes you wonder, you know, did Lacare actually meet the Cray twins or any of their associates when they were with his dad? Like, did he know how these people behaved? I'm, I'm, oh, I'm curious. Sure he did. I, well, he, yeah. he knew his dad, for God's sakes. He knew his father, and I'm sure it wouldn't have been, you know, it's not that big a drop, you know, from the diamonds in the sidewalk to the dirt in the gutter. Isn't that what uh, John yeah. Prine says in his song lyrics? So I'm sure if you know if you know the top end, you know the bottom end, and Lacare grew up with the middle end, so or with the middle of it. So I'm sure he saw folk like this in his dealings, because he did a lot of work around the racetracks, too, Lacare did. Mm-hmm. He used to deliver bets and things and, and broker deals between people for bookies, so... I think that's if this Pigeon Tunnel documentary is anything to go by. But he, he remembers doing that for his father. And I'm sure the people who are, you know, rigging horse races and betting on the, on the horses aren't necessarily your most upstanding. So they're probably the scar type guys. Yeah, good point. Anyway, so we got Elsa Fennin. Uh, you know, she's cold, experienced, and I think it's interesting that she has that backstory, which is legitimized by all the characters. Um, but yeah, but it, it makes us sympathize with her before we really know her. And I think that's that's clever on Lakari's part because we're we're guessing, you know, we're guessing. Um she clearly lies about the call. I think that was kind of telegraphed there at the beginning too. Like it, it seems evident that her excuse is very quick, it comes quickly. It's something that could have been checked, right? Like it's kind of bad on or it's kind of a a slip on her part because it's just easy police work can find out and does find out how that call came about. She doesn't make a good lie up about that. It just goes to show that she's become such a fanatic that 
she forgot, I think, who she was as a person in a way, because obviously she had affections for, she had affection for mm-hmm. Fennin. And though, so when he, when he is for, when he is killed, you know, by Munt and whatnot, she tries to cover it up, but eventually it gets mm-hmm. to her. So it does show how much she, she she's feeling for his death, you know, okay, midway sure. through. Okay. As, yeah. Even though, you know, she gets kind of her own comeuppance, I suppose, but. I just didn't think that her line about that 8.30 wake-up call was consistent or clever for an agent or even a courier. Like, I don't see them doing that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It but seemed anyway. to me that was a con- that, that's a conflict of her professionalism and then her emotional connection to the death of Fennin. That's my interpretation Maybe, because it. it is still fresh. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's my own canon. Her scenes Everyone are good, though. perspective on that. There was a slight kind of s- substance to the scenes I found with her and Smiley where was Smiley looking for his next girl after that? Like, I'm wondering if there was he was trying to emotionally connect to her because you had the whole thing where like he's sitting down and he's being next to her and he's being sympathetic and but she brushes him off because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to deal with that. Like, I'm wondering if Smiley kind of saw her as a possible you know future lover in this sense, but she wouldn't allow him to get close because of the guilt or anything like that, or maybe she was just disgusted by him. I don't know, but uh, she was yeah, definitely. I never, contempt- I never read it that way. She definitely had contempt for his profession, but maybe not for him, I think would be the middle ground there. Because she has a whole sign about, oh, you, you guys picking, you know, all your lives on a map or something in, in your office and then going out and ruining those lives. That was sort of her. Mm-hmm. You paper see, you lives. See spies, yeah. pa- paper, you see, paper. Yeah, your paper people and whatnot. So, or was that her just kind of being a bit overcompensating for the situation, you know? No, I think that's that's the spy in her saying, you know, you live. Yeah. I think that's her uh, accusing all civil servants, police, uh, I guess, as well, of just doing things by the book, not understanding that sometimes, like uh, like Bond says, sometimes a trigger needs to be pulled, right? Like it's, it's like he says in yes. Skyfall to to Mallory, sometimes a trigger needs to be pulled. Um, so she sees, so she sees him as a collaborator with the enemy more than just a, a civil servant doing his duty that that to her is enough so. for him to be yeah. culpable in yeah. the enemy that she is fighting overall yeah 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 let's let's go with that in terms of Dieter Fry I've uh I, I hesitate to use the word Byronic but he's kind of he's he is kind of desirable charismatic he's obviously a capable agent um some yeah. people are drawn towards him there's there is like a hero quality to him and i think that comes back to that point i i made earlier um where i raised the issue of anti-semitism perhaps incorrectly labeling as such but that sort of nobility that um that objectification of him as a as a character with this uh this righteousness about him like this nobility this marked for death martyrdom uh, like the way he's written anyway i uh, yeah there is something there and He's you know, kind I of like, know. Uh, yeah, I, I see, I see where you're going. But even yeah, at the absolutely. end, like, even at the end, like, I'll just read this bit here. Dieter was dead and he had killed him. The broken fingers of his right hand, the stiffness of his body and the sickening headache, the nausea of guilt all testified to this. And Dieter had let him do it, had not fired the gun, had remembered their friendship when Smiley had not. They had fought in a cloud, in the rising stream of the river, in a clearing, in a timeless forest. They had met, two friends rejoined, and fought mm-hmm. like beasts. Dieter had remembered, and Smiley had not. Like, there's that idea that's suggested, and it's not really subtly suggested, that 
Smiley took advantage of what could have been a detente, not a detente, but you know what I mean? It might have been a let's walk away here, Smiley. Ceasefire. We got too much situation. respect for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there is that martyrdom about him. Like, he didn't attack the way he could have attacked. And I just yes. feel like yes. it makes him interesting, but it also makes him a bit lame at the same time. Yeah, I got my issues with Dieter Frey as a character. First thing about Dieter Frey I don't like, but not about this character as, you know, him as a personality wise. I can kind of see the nobility that Guacare, uh, through Smiley's interpretation of him, the, the nobility that he has. But what I don't like about his character, I suppose, is that he's supposed to be kind of not the big bad, but he's supposed to be this organizing force in the story. And he appears nearly almost three quarters into it for the first time. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, yeah. it's, it's the whole idea of connecting the espionage, the main plot line to Smiley's past is what essentially happens here. And this, it, what it does though, is it makes the story more about Smiley than anything else, because this is someone that he trained to work for him. And he created this monster so to speak and this monster was more noble than him in the end he had more honor than him so i do get the tragedy of that but at the same time i just feel that i wish there were seeds of his character planted early in the story so that we can get more of a sense of his character not just between munt and we just hear about this guy midway through and i, I it just seems to me like Again, Lucare is trying, it's a first time writer, so he's putting all these elements together and trying to make them work, but not all of them do, you know, and that's fine. But to me, I just found I really couldn't connect with him as the villain. And he was like this obscure, not obscure, but he was like this ephemeral figure of villainy in the story that I just couldn't quite attach to. And mm. <laughs> I, I struggled with it. Let's just say that. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, as for Munt, you mentioned him a second ago, Smiley refers to him as a automaton who just follows yes. Dieter's tradecraft handbook to the very letter. He's more realistic, I guess, Josh, than like a James Bond henchman, but he's not as fun to read, unfortunately. So Fleming was onto a winner there, you know? Like John Smith in uh, Five yeah, Decembers. Yeah. He, was, he was very exactly. much similar in yeah. that fashion. Yeah. He's a, he's a bit of a specter in the story, to be honest. And like, this will certainly appeal to hardcore crime fans or like, sorry, spy, spy fans, I should say, um, and maybe even register with intelligence figures, are, you know, like Lacare or, you know, our Uncle Richard, who you mentioned before. Um, but for the general reader, I mean, Munt, he's just kind of boring. He's a, he, he's a stick man in a, in, a, in a plot. There's no dimension. There's not nothing really even there. And I get it. I do totally get it. That's the point, Scott. Like, that's the point. But his impact on the reader is far less than his impact in the world of the story. And yes. maybe that's how it goes in the real world. And maybe that's an effective spy, but it's not an effective character. It's not an enjoyable character. In a story that doesn't have a lot of characters, Munt is a forgettable guy. And for the time people talk about him and for the time he's on the page, he's ephemeral. He's in and out before anybody really even remembers him. And so he's not yeah. a failure as a plot agent. He's a failure as a character kind Villain. of as a I, yeah and to as me, a like, character I that, that you remember more Dieter Frey would have been desirable over Munt because then we could see Munt as just a figure a tool that Munt use that Frey uses sorry Fry uses Frey mm. I'm speaking of like fucking Game of Thrones Game of Thrones here sorry uh but well I've been calling but, but I'm thinking well, that yeah, yeah it's, it's true yeah F-R-E-Y anyways just going on I just felt that he was like an extension of Dieter's power, 
but in the end, he was just like, as you said, an automaton just doing doing the work. And I wish that's where we could have more fleshing out of Dieter Frey, this martyrdom character, who kind of reminded me a bit of like a bit of uh, similar to Laszlo in Casablanca. Uh, he's the rival lover, but at the same time, he's a righteous good man in the same way. So you can't really hate mm, him for being interesting. The, that's, the, a neat, the, that's a neat connection, yeah. Which which makes me connect more to like the possibility of Elsa and Dieter having an affair. It's just, just something to think about of, of what the kind of character that Frey could have been as opposed to what we're given. But maybe, you know, that's the whole thing about these spy stories is that they are romanticized like John Buchan and Ian Fleming in this sense where we get details of characters like that and they enjoy their villainy or they're at least, you know, entertaining in their villainy and the plot is exciting and whatnot. And not that this plot isn't exciting in its own way, but we're also dealing with the type of spy writing and mystery writing that we really haven't seen before. So that's really important to consider when you're reading this book. But at the same time, it's how I'm viewing it as a one-time read. So that, that, that's always going to be in play yeah. here. Yeah. Cool. Like I, yeah. I found like I'm they were you. written well enough for what they were in the story, but they lack something for me as villains and victims. And that just, and that just might be, you know, like Frey was too rigid in his ideology and his cause. And he lacked the ability to see the nuance in what Fennin was doing with Smiley. And then he overreacted, right? Cause that's how, uh, that's how Fennin is killed. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So to me, it just seems like Lakar sketched out interesting characters who were believable in how they were described acting in this spy world, in the in this spy world. But at the same time, I just wanted more meat from the characters. Uh, I think that's my, 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 again, my main issue. And yeah. that's why I was kind of like, I was jumping between three and a three and a half out of five for the perpetrators. But I'm going to stay with my three. Yeah, well, that's where I was too. And I think it it's reflective in both of what we're saying. Like, we don't dislike these characters, but <clears throat> there's not a lot of them. And maybe Lakari is going for the realism there, where you know you don't get to know your spies. Fair enough. But, you know, in a story where we learn about all their backstory, I'd like to hear them talk a little bit. <laughs> I'd like to see them share a little bit more. And I think Elsa's the one we know most of, isn't it? But in the end, she gets kind of almost like... I just felt yeah, I had no does, emotional yeah. attachment to her death either. Like she just dies and she's kind of forgotten yeah. about and you just read a report about it. And it's just, <laughs> that that's it though, I guess. That's the end. That's the whole spy game, right? It's, no, that's you it, don't yeah. look back. Yeah. You just it's move cold. on and people, it's cold. Yeah. Exactly. As it's, it should, as it's it should be. It's cold, yeah. As it should so be. Maybe so maybe our, our whole. I think, I think we've, we've been used to yeah. reading a lot of Bond novels, which are really ostentatious and kind of overblown and packed up, but. I don't know. There's still something missing here if you compare this to Graham Greene. Graham Greene characterizes really well. Lakari is not terribly interested yet in doing that through his dialogue and stuff. None of them are great at writing women so far. I, I will say that. No, so far. No, I, ha- I haven't read the rest of Lakari's stuff, but I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Okay, well, let's move on to environment. We're both at a three for that. Um, I, you know, this is what it is. Like, we get some foreign locations told us in told to us in flashback or in uh, you know the memory reflection of uh, of Smiley, but London is London and it's okay you know like I like I really like the scenes between Scar and Mendel in the pub and I could imagine those the conversations um, I liked the you know the atmospheric nature of the Battersea Bridge and the the houseboat and all of that sort of stuff. I liked all that, um, the concert hall. But it was just a concert hall, like it wasn't anything more than that. You know the descriptions of Berlin were nice, 
um, and Germany and stuff, but there wasn't a lot. Like, there was no more description in this about Oxford University or anything else than you would have got anywhere else. Like, it's just occasional references to weather. I don't really feel like Lacari's terribly interested in, in evoking atmosphere for the sake of descriptive setting, you know, like establishing locations and stuff. It it just it's just kind of it's it's serviceable. I'd say serviceable for sure. It does set a mood though, like this fog and shrouded, drizzly January London. There you know, everyone everything in this Cold War story, it feels bleak and hopeless. Like I think he accomplished that very well. You don't get the travelogue of London, but you feel that the characters are chasing through this literal and metaphorical fog in a way. Mm. And 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 that's, as that's, that's good. a story. Yeah, that's good. But that's operative yeah. words, serviceable, right? So I mean, that's that. Yeah. I gave it I gave but, it three yeah. out of five for environs. There wasn't anything like there was no pathetic fallacy or anything kind of metaphorical in the writing unless you look really hard for it. Uh, but yeah. I mean, you can say yeah. that in, in anybody's writing in that respect. I don't think that was, that wasn't the objective for, for look for Le Carre. I think he was trying to set a mood and I think he, he, I think he, he did that just fine for the story. Okay. Well, I wasn't far away. I was with a two and a half and you were the three. So okay. you're serviceable plus, and I'm just, I'm just at serviceable. It passes, you know, it passes for me as a reader. Uh, but it's it's not a standout, and this this will this comment will move us into secondaries or supporting players, because I love yes. the the pub scenes. As I said, I love the pub scenes between Scar and Mendel, but that's because I lo- I like the character of Mendel. I thought he was really good. Um, I like Mendel's how cool. he and Smiley kind of meet each other at a time when they're both kind of in the same <laughs> disillusioned place, you know, and Mendel is a good guy. He's a good friend. He's a good man. He's a good cop. Um, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot about that. We do learn though, that he's got what it takes to get guys like Scar across his knee, you know? Absolutely. And I like the idea of, you know, these two operatives from different uh, security services working together on this case, uh, despite the defiance from all the politics. Right. So there's definitely this sort of not, left wing, but there's definitely almost like not about some kind of like the common man working together against big politics and corruption and just want to solve the crime sort of feel, do the right thing that their ideology has been twisted to, I guess, because of their experiences. And now that's what they want to do and, mm. and, and, pl- and play against, you know, the gentleman's club that runs the whole thing. That's my view anyway, yeah. but uh, yeah. so that's why I enjoyed Mendel's Men- Mendel- character. I, I liked his, I liked his garden. I liked his house. Uh, the little nuances of his character. And as you said, the, the pub scenes with Scar were really good. He knew how to handle that crowd well. Um, he did. Yeah. And you know, he's had lots of opportunity to do those learning moments or to have those learning moments. He he is the legs of the story, though. Like he does so much of the work and he takes he it does, upon literally himself. literally his leg work. He takes it upon himself as well, Josh, like to to do beyond what he's asked to do like he's got a bloodhound's nose and he's interested in in doing the inspecting like he is he's connected to it and he's invested in in helping out smiley like if it weren't for him smiley probably would have died you know um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and although peter well peter wellum comes in on his own steam sort of um but why does he come in though because he's a, because he's loyal to because he hear because obviously he hears about his, uh, you know, his fellow, his friend Smiley being beaten up, and that's why he comes onto the scene, right? So, 
Mm, yeah. Well, he's a bit younger too, though, isn't he, Willem? Like, he is a bit younger. He He's a younger guy, so maybe he sees him as, a, he sees them both as mentors in a way he wants to learn from them. That's sort of hinted at, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh, then we have Mastiff, It's weird the way example. he talks. <laughs> like, Willem talks, though, Josh. He says things like, dear boy and old boy. Like, is that like a condescension or, or what? A condi- like, No. What do you think he's doing? Is he being con- con- uh, condescending th- there? Or... I don't think he's trying to be condescending. I think he's just hearkening back to like that picture, you know, of them all together, right? With like, yeah, okay, okay, Steed Asprey and all that sort of stuff, right? And uh, yeah, that but crowd. Is he, is he connected with that? Is he connected with that crowd? Like, I, he's younger I assume, than Smiley. I assume that he was. Uh, I, I I don't know. I just don't know how he fits into the story. I just know that he appears briefly at the beginning, I think, and then you don't see him again until after Smiley is in the hospital. So I'm just trying to put together as to how he gets into the story again. He enters the story because Smiley needs some help um, from the department. And he he asks Mendel to get him in, I thought. Yeah, it makes more sense maybe that he was a younger guy then. I just never caught that in the story. But anyways, uh, I feel feel kind of bad about that now. No, I feel kind of bad about that. I'm not saying he's much younger. Yeah. Anyway, he and Mendel together do a lot of the heavy lifting in the second half of the story. Like, cut it up either way you want it. And without those two characters, this story fails because Smiley can't get where he ends up if it weren't for them. Do you know? No, he just gets the... And that's why I... Yeah, yeah. The butler did it moment, you know, at at the end, essentially. And with a bit of a confrontation (laughs) with his past, you know, so... That's right, yeah. He has that. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. What about Anne? Other char- Anne, I mean, we get, we can see how she's helped develop his character into what he is, but it is, but it just to me, it just kind of, Le Carre is trying to, you know, I guess there's some sort of classist message that he's putting in there, maybe about how even rich women will marry b- beneath them if the man is a good man at heart or something like that. I, is is that what he's trying to tell there? It could be. Yeah, maybe. Like, he's definitely hung up on her, even though she humiliates him, and she knows she humiliates him. All of her friends in the opening chapter can't figure out why she's married him. He's happy. Not to mention we, his first wife's scene. name is Anne. That's right, yeah. We get, we, get a, we get that scene at the start, though, like, where she's, like, he remembers fondly this time where he talks to her over dinner and drinking wine and stuff about how he interviews and how he is a successful agent because chiefly he can put himself in the interviewee's spot and he can give the questions and he can perform and that's how he describes it he can perform the role that they want in order to gain trust and comfort and stuff and that's interesting because she calls him my little toad and you get this idea that she is playful as well as maybe a bit a bit condescending but she's not a nice character i don't think like she doesn't leave she doesn't leave him for this Cuban race driver because, oh, she's having a midlife crisis. I just think she's a serial philanderer and she's probably done this before. Yeah, because I, it mentions that she was a secretary when he married her. So that assumes that she must have some experience in that industry, so to speak. I mean, she could have been at Bletchley Park because as a volunteer or something because she is the, the sister mm-hmm. of, a noble, mm-hmm. of a nobleman. So when she comes onto the scene and he, she knows people like Smiley and she knows these people are more than what they say they are, despite the class 
differences between them. She might have initially liked him, but then once she saw, but he probably failed in the romance department for her. And then eventually she got bored and, and moved on because she does send mm. him a letter saying, you know, do you want to get back together or something like that later on in the story? So she just gets, I think she just gets bored and she's as frivolous or fickle or something like that. And she wants to go back to the man who really excites her, this boring, you know, balding <laughs> s- civil servant and she wants to, because she finds him more interesting than the Adonis, you know, that she's supposed to go for uh, in terms yeah. of the social expectations. Well, it's clear, isn't it, that Smiley does something for her. Like, if she didn't, she doesn't need to marry him. She doesn't need to go with him. So there must have been something there in the first place that she was attracted to. His intellect, yes. the kind of Freudian hang-ups that he's got, because he's definitely got something going on in the story. I don't, you know, he's got some psychoses. Um, so she must have yeah. been drawn to him, like a wounded animal or something, or a curio from a museum tank. I don't know what she was thinking, but... Um, I, I, I know I, I know that she comes into the story later again, or into the Smiley books later on. And, you know, what what do you think about him going, though, after her letter? Like, her letter to him basically says, I'm going to ask you to do something that, you know, no self-respecting man would do, which is take me back type thing. And he decides to do it. <laughs> what is that? What's, what, what are we meant to think of Smiley for doing, for getting on that plane to Zurich at the end? He just, you know, I, darling George, he, I want to make you an he offer misses, no gentleman can accept. I want you to come back to you. I'm staying at the Bauer Orlaka Zurich till the end of the month. Let me know. And and he doesn't even telegram her. He gets on the plane, so he's like a hopeless romantic. It's it's a dependency, I suppose, and she knows that he's going to come back because she knows that she's all that. And he and I just think mm. maybe she knows that he misses casual sex because she's assuming that he's not having anything anything pleasurable in his life at the moment besides his job. And he knows that you know he'll come back for, at least for that, anyways, or some sort of companionship yeah, yeah. interpretation of that, I suppose. So it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, isn't that what they say? For someone else, <laughs> that's a song too. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So, what what did you think then? You don't oh, know Mastin. What you got do you, you want to talk gone. about Mastin? Well, Mastin is just a typical like upper echelon prick who's doing who pretends you know to have all this comradeship and you know old all to the old service boy. You know, we're all together in this and we're all trying to work together. But in the end, the politics determine what that guy has to say, and he can change on a dime, right? So, yeah, you do get that idea. That's 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 very turn on a that's, dime. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And as as quickly as he offers that job in security, <clears throat> sorry, in sa- in satellite intelligence, you get the idea that he could retract the offer <laughs> as well. Absolutely. He was Yeah. He let, Smiley, he, he hand, Smiley knows he, that. He held out his hand and offered him a, a you know the another chance essentially to come back and oh yeah the re- yeah it's like the resignation letter I completely ignored that unacceptable unacceptable you know and yeah it's yeah. It's, <laughs> What choice does he have, right? I, I think mean, that's, though, that, that's yeah, that's true. The politics are well, pulling his strings. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't he doesn't but, trust Smiley. But but it, but whatever. Yeah, but it's funny though because Smiley wrote that letter as an act of great defiance. Like he, even he even says like I don't know what came over me, but I did it and it's done. And then mm-hmm. all, it, it means nothing because the the head of intelligence can easily pull that away and say I don't accept that. 
even though he, right. you have a right to resign. I'm not accepting that. And I mean, he does, he could technically still resign if he wanted to, but I think he knows his guy enough or has him pinned down enough that he mm. knows if he mm. offers him a way back in, then he'll take it. So mm. yeah, Mastin is a sneaky snake. He, uh, he, he knows what he's doing in his own way, just, and he knows that it's all politics, and that's just how you play the game. He's a careerist, and that's what he is. Mm. It's kind of like that scene in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know, where Bond resigns, and then M says, no thanks, I'm not, I didn't think you were serious anyway. Oh no, Moneypenny rewrote the letter. She rewrote the letter, though, didn't she? She did. She did, yeah. yeah. But you know, it's funny, like the, yeah, whatever, that's fine. Um, okay, well, with that said, you know, the bureaucrat boss, I think he kind of rounds out our supporting cast. I, I, on the merit of their strength, though, I think I think Mendel and Willem really do help make this. And Anne is an interesting character. I think she raises their score a bit here. Or I think collectively their score is raised here. I, I gave the supporting cast a four for this book. Mm. Um, I did were too. you as generous as me or were you a little... I, I gave it a the supporting cast to me is what took this kind of like linear story that was made twisted for obvious reasons. And it made it work for me uh, as a, when I couldn't pin down, you know, the, the protagonist of the story or even the antagonists, I couldn't, I had to be kind of very murky about their motives and what they were doing. I couldn't get emotionally attached to those or not emotionally attached, but invested, I suppose, mm -hmm. into the characters enough. The supporting cast to me brought this world to life and it made me invested at least into the, the story, not in, a, in an emotional sense, but more into a intellectual sense it would, would be the better way to describe it. Cool. Well, with our scores then of four each, um, you're at a 17.5 for Call for the Dead, and I'm at a 16. So, okay. This was an interesting first uh, experience with Lacare. I wouldn't for a minute try to say that, oh, yeah, I know Lacare now. I don't. Um, I think that's a, you know, uh, it, it was an interesting book. I'm glad we started here because from everything I, I think, th there are millions of fans of this guy's literature out there, and he's. I think he goes from strength to strength. Uh, I don't think anyone would call Call for the Dead the best of the Smiley novels or the best of Le Carre. Uh, so I would be keen to read another one of his books a little later down the road if you're up for that. For sure, absolutely. And you're absolutely right about Le Carre's power as a writer because I haven't read the book, but I'm assuming that the film The Constant Gardener was a good adaptation of the book anyways, because I found that a very powerful movie in what it was telling. So I know yeah. that there is a grand writer in John Le Carre. And right now he's writing about things that were, at uh, this time, he's writing about things that were important to him and then what he knew about and he wanted to share with the world in his own way about the life that he was leading, about the life that these people lead him as a whole. And I think mm -hmm. he portrayed that the best that he could as a first time writer. And it's just a matter, you just have to grow as a writer and you get better at it. You get better at, the key thing of him was establishing a realistic world of espionage. And I think he did that well. And yeah. I believe, you know, then that yeah. af after a while, you know, you get better at character and, and plot structure and metaphor and putting your themes in there in a subtle way. You know, I, I think you would grow, you grow as a writer through that process. So I, I believe that is John Le Carre's trajectory from this point. Mm. 
And also consider, Josh, to add to your points, consider too that 1961 was a time when the atrocities of the war and Hitler's Holocaust and Himmler and the SS and all of this stuff, that was obviously known and news and reportage and, you know, stories and survivors and all of that stuff was becoming more and more popularized in the cultural milieu and the mindscape of everyday people. But it wasn't what we know of it today. You know, not everyone in 1961 had, nobody in 1961 had the internet. Nobody, there were still a lot of Holocaust deniers. There were still a lot of people who didn't understand East Germany, didn't know what was going on with respect to the division of the city from the four allied powers. Like there was, there was a sense, I guess, in 1961 to give call for the dead its credit. Maybe this is a bit more progressive than history allows us to read it or hindsight should give more credit for i'm i'm it's late at night for me now i'm kind of losing all my words but i guess what i'm trying to say no, I is you. that i think that maybe maybe we're reading it and it's aged a bit but in 1961 a book about a holocaust survivor who turns east german spy that's that's pretty powerful stuff you know um criticism against the Third Reich wasn't novel or new, and news of the Holocaust certainly wasn't, but to write that into a a spy story that you're trying to deliberately keep stripped down because you still work for an intelligence agency, I mean, I think maybe he's up against and dealing with the contemporary facts of society, post-World War society, that we're maybe glossing over because we are 60 years separated from this history. Do you know what I'm trying to say as readers? Oh, I do understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, the contemporary part is very important for when this book was read. And that should definitely be considered, you know, if you read this story as a historical artifact. But as a novel, as it stands on the own, Mm -hmm. uh, stands Mm -hmm. on its own, you're still forced to wonder why that wasn't in here. And then you have to go and look up and find out the reason why. And then you're like, oh, okay. So... Mm -hmm. I, I get Good it, point. and that's fine, yeah. but that does not help when we have to come up with a scoring system. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and, and read the category, so we can't look at it in that way. We can acknowledge that, you know, afterwards, which is what we're doing right now, but mm-hmm. in terms of reviewing this, the, the, in terms of reviewing the story, um, it's best, to, I, I think, that we stick to our criteria and then make mm-hmm. acknowledgments afterwards. You're right. And I guess if we wanted to look uh, to our own reading for an example of uh, of a context, a contemporary context, a historical context that does this better, you've got, you know, French Indochina, you've got The Quiet American. Quiet American? That's, mm-hmm. that's a better work of literature. It characterizes better. It, it, it lingers better. It hangs around in the scene better. And, you know, Graham Greene was an officer. author. By an established well, author, yeah, he was an agent as well. So, I feel like maybe maybe there is there is call for criticism here in the writing because Lacare didn't do that. Like the book, w- this book doesn't age as well. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, this book doesn't seem to age as well yeah. as the Graham Greene books that we read because Green does things differently and better when it comes to character writing. You know, true. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I see the comparisons between the, the two writers. And I, I, at the time when The Quiet American came out, Graham Greene was already an established author. So he was someone mm. who, who who has already experimented in plot structures and character development. So, you know, he went through his crucible, I suppose, to, to be able to achieve mm. that in his writing. And The Quiet yeah, American yeah. is a perfect example of that. Whereas this is a first-time writer trying things out about things that he knows that he's familiar with. And, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of uh, baby steps as you approach, you know, mm-hmm. as we know, his third novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, is is what made him a, a phenomenon. So yeah, he's working right. toward yeah. that story where he's going to marry this verisimilitude in terms of portraying the world of espionage in a gritty, down-to-earth way, uh, mixing that with most likely what are interesting characters and, mm-hmm. uh, and and themes that he's going to extrapolate in, in that book and later stories as well, especially when he returns to Smiley in his Carla trilogy, from what I've been told. So, Superb. All right. Well, I think that does the lighting the pipes treatment then. That's our treatment on, on this one. Uh, but I'm glad that you, you brought it onto our reading list for the year and it was fun to go through it. And yeah, I would recommend it. It's It's a mild recommend for me. If only if you're into spy genre in particular, if you're into yeah. the spy genre yeah. in particular, and you also want to, you know, do a survey of John Le Carré, you want to see what all the fuss is about in terms of his right. participation yeah. to, to, the, to the spy and mystery genre. So, Superb. Nice one. Okay, mm-hmm. well, um, we've got more reading and viewing coming up on Lighten the Pipes before the new year. Josh, um, what do we got coming up on Light in the Pipes? We have a holiday read. We've got um, mm-hmm. The Long Shadow by by Celia Fremlin. And that's kind of like Christmassy themed. Uh, we, we put on here. I sent you a copy of that one. I thought maybe we could add that for a little holiday reading. Sounds good. Right. Well, everybody, we'll, uh, we'll be back here soon on Light in the Pipes with uh, our Christmas read, The Long Shadow. That's uh, Celia Fremlin. A very she's described here by this. Um, I love that blurb. <laughs> yeah, she's described here on this Faber uh, paperback as being the grandmother <laughs> of psycho domestic <laughs> noir. Now that's clearly a mouthful, but I don't know, man. Like I saw that and thought Psych- this is one for us. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Although to be the honest, Christmas Josh, party that ends in a, in a bloody way. I'm assuming that's all I can think. Yeah. Of. Well, yeah. Based on this uh, this this paperback copy, yeah. Oh, and we've also got another little something for you around Christmas time too. We're going to release two episodes in December. One will be um, the Long Shadow by Celia Fremlin, a full review on that novel, and another will be a little something special for the Christmas season. Josh and I got planned. It'll be fun. For sure, I'm excited about. Brush it. off your pipes and your deer stalkers. That's all we're going to say. <laughs> Lots of snow or not? Lots Who of knows? snow. Yeah, yeah. Lots of geese. Uh, But I've said too much. (laughs) Right, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can find uh, us on Instagram at pipes underscore pod, or you can email myself or Josh at the show at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com. It's always great to have comments. And if you can share the show, uh, give us a review online. That would always be appreciated. And let others like yourself find the show. Take care, happy reading, and we'll get you back here very soon. Take it easy.